0: very much. Um, I have some confessions to make straight away. Um, First of all, I feel a little bit of a fraud because I... We know you're not Russian. (laughs) (laughs) Quite right. And not only that, I don't speak Russian either. Um, I was very much supported in this by um, a good friend Victoria, um, who sadly can't be here. Um, But I do feel, even so, that there are likely to be things that I say that you don't think are true, um, perhaps they weren't true at the time, and they're not true now. So please do feel free to interrupt and to take issue with the things that I'm saying because I'm aware that what I'm presenting is quite secondhand, and some of it may be out of date. Um, We were advised to make things um, interactive, and that's what I'm going to do. I've actually got a whole hour, which is slightly daunting. Um, So there are four activities, and I do hope that you'll feel able to do things in little groups. And hopefully we have a range of expertise on Russia that we can tap into in small groups. Um, Another thing I should say to you... um, Emily is quite right. I now work at the Centre for Education Studies at the University of Warwick and unfortunately my PowerPoint still has the Institute of Education Uh. on it and this is not me being lazy in not changing it. I tried and then I realised that I lost the Harrison State Pedagogical University logo and my technical skills aren't good enough to be able to alter this without altering that. (laughs) So I'm sorry that it's it's not completely up to date. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You are going to get the PowerPoint, um, I think, at the end and there is going to be some activities, but I have deliberately not given you things in advance because some of the activities I want you to do some thinking about. Um, and those of you either giving the presentations this morning or paying close attention will probably get brownie points because some of the things that I'm saying, I'm going to ask you to compare with what you were told this morning um, to see how far they overlap and where there are any differences. Okay. So um, I've done quite a lot of um, cross-cultural research, comparative research. (coughs) I'm told reliably that it helps you understand your own context better if you research in other places. Um, I'm less reliably told that it may promote democracy. That's what Jarvis says, but I'm still out on that. But I think it's valuable work. I've always found it personally fascinating. And it's very good to be continually reminded of the ways things are similar to what I'm familiar with, but also different. It really helps you to unpick the taken for granted. you cannot see the unseen you cannot speak the unspoken and so comparative research is very useful in that respect I think as Linda explained this morning of the presenters I'm the educationalist for my sins so I was particularly interested in the role of mid-level manager academics or what I have called heads of department although that isn't the term necessarily used um, Everywhere. That's the level that I'm thinking of, below that of Dean, most often head of department. And I'm going to be completely honest you know, you can ask me to leave the stage now. This is small scale research. It was an opportunistic sample. There were only 11 people. I got rejected from higher education because it was too small a sample. Um, but my argument at the time was that there is so little empirical research that even something small scale can be insightful and can be worth doing. Um, it's an elite state university in a large Russian city and in deference to Victoria, I must say that it isn't Herzen State Pedagogical University. Okay. So basically I did a small scale study with Victoria that was looking at heads of department, particularly at how they were selected and supported and at how the role was described and understood and especially for me, the most fascinating part, when this was conducted in 2008, was whether the social, economic and political context had had an impact, and of course, how. What was the impact? Russian higher education in general, and the head of department role (coughs) in particular. Now, in your small group, so you can do it in twos or threes, this morning, (coughs) go especially, talked about a whole range of challenges and achievements. There were some achievements, remember I'm talking about 2008, so that would have been the last part of Go presentation. What were the achievements that were identified in the literature in 2008 that were held up as things that had been positive since the disestablishment of the Soviet Union? In your group, can you list Say three or four of the things you remember from the morning that were listed as achievements, and three or four of the things that were still considered a challenge at
1: 2008. Good to you. It take, yeah. what were the that you can remember.
0: You probably, you know, you don't want to listen to four hours of people just presenting at you. So, my research in terms of the reading of the literature um, has identified these achievements, some of which were already talked about and more eloquently (coughs) by
2: (laughs) Geragay.
3: You can just call me George. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I may have misheard or not paid attention this morning, but I thought there was one thing in this list that wasn't mentioned um, this morning. Yeah, um, I was told from you know what I read that. Tuition fees were introduced and then they actually had a voucher system that had to be um, disbanded uh, because, well, I don't know exactly why it didn't work but well. the
2: voucher system didn't, was not introduced throughout the entire sector. They only piloted, uh, piloted it in a small number of institutions and then obviously, it had to be halted, basically. But why? Do you remember? Well, because, well, the lack of legislation, because there was a lot of external contradictions between different laws, etc.
1: Maybe maybe it's linked as well to the fact that the state was accumulating a great deal of money because of the price of energy, oil and Mm -hmm. gas. So they had, you know, there was was a big fund available, so the state, through having money was able to reassert its control,
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: also the choice was made uh, in favour of um, uh, education loans mm-hmm. rather than vouchers later, like, as a result, and in the new law, the education loan uh, has a prominent place.
0: Yeah, yeah. I found that fascinating because my understanding in terms of um, certainly the context in England England and Wales, I have to be careful because the tuition situation is different in Scotland and different, again, in, in Northern Ireland. And, and Basically, here, I perceive tuition fees are less about saving money and more about positioning the student as a consumer and as somebody who, through marketisation of higher education, will allegedly drive up standards. So it was interesting to me to see that tuition fees had been introduced in uh, Russia, but discontinued after the pilot, yeah. Okay, and the same thing challenges. I think there's one thing here for definite that wasn't mentioned this morning, and I do hope I'm not going to offend anybody. I've got some Russian literature to back this up.
1: Endemic
2: <laughs>
0: I don't know if it's it's no longer the case or um, the person I read was misinformed if you're interested I think I've cited um, the paper that we published and that's got all the references but Ospian wrote extensively and and other authors too about what they viewed at that time as endemic corruption Um, did you want to say your question about... uh, other challenge. You came up with a very good challenge about agency and structure, which I thought well, was informative.
3: See, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I like to. I see my mission as uh, um, romanticising all the challenges um, um, in Russia. Um, yeah, that, that's my mission as I live here. I'm from St. Petersburg, uh, in Russia, and I work for the University of British Um Well. So, I've, I've done various things, and I started in business in Russia, but then now actually social science and education is my field. So, so in a way, it challenged me and forced me to look at things differently, right? Um, so, and, and we talked about cheating, um, and, and uh, um, cheating isn't stu- like obviously various levels of corruption, but here but um, I'm actually very much interested in individuals, and individuals and agency, that sort of stuff, versus system, etc. So, so I uh, tried to explain to a couple of people um, in England how, let's say, what would be seen as such a negative, let's say, concept of students cheating or sort of higher achieving students um, helping lower achieving students, in, um, seen as so unethical um, and, you know, sharing uh, individual work or not producing individual work, in terms of Russian culture, at least certain aspects of Russian culture could actually be seen um, framed as agency versus structure,
1: mm-hmm.
3: so so that could actually be expression of individual agency, um, right? Helping it, um, and I was I was as uh, many of us here, the Russians probably who who, who you know who, who now have jobs and education. I was a higher achieving student, so not, 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 to, not to share your work, you know, with students who achieve lower, you know, you be you, the worst person in the classroom, you know, you, you would not be a good human being. I wonder I if that's
0: linked to, to sort of a collectivist society.
3: society. But yeah. in terms of this, um, ethics, like I said here, it would be, cheating would be seen so unethical, mm. whereas, I don't know how, how it is now, because i you know, I've, I just go back for very short periods of time now. Um, but um, it's very hard to explain it in terms of, let's say, um, um, your identity and your origins and how even ethics, ethics alone, could actually be uh, such a different thing across cultures. Yeah, okay. You know, so that's that's what I wanted to say, that actually, um, yes, cheating could be a part of corruption, but at the same time, from social science or even like an anthropological point of view, it could actually be seen uh, from a certain angle, as ethical when um, it comes to individuals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you yeah. want to help other people in your class? It's actually a very individualistic and competitive thing that says, you know, it must be my own work and I mustn't help anybody else do better.
1: Well, in fact, it comes from the Soviet tradition as well, right? When uh, the uh, overachieving students were even forced or encouraged to help the uh, less achieving students. Well, so it it is, is a big part of
2: the culture, and helping and Cheating. Well, so okay. I
1: agree. By <laughs> <way>. uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so as well. Well, it's well documented corruption in Russia, yeah. in general, and in higher education in particular. Um, I've done some research with Paul Temple, I think in the early notice, where we looked at corruption practices in higher education institutions, and and cheating could be seen as part of corruption, but it was more, more, we talked mainly about bribery, priceless circulating institutions <laughs> before the exam and test periods, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, And in a way, maybe in the Russian system, if you didn't take bribes, if you didn't use your individual personal position of power, then you would be seen as a loser, yeah. maybe. Yeah? Yeah. So I don't know what the situation is like now, because... And I think these government regulations about imposing stricter financial controls the, even though they were part of the larger policy but they were really targeted at the higher education system as well because higher education system in Russia was considered the second most corrupt sector after the, Paris.
0: Yeah.
1: After,
2: after the Paris. oh, police. after okay, right. the Okay,
1: So
0: thanks for really thanks for all the contributions and Georgie, you've brought me nicely to the second activity <laughs> in terms of that was in 2008 and we've talked and heard about various reforms since. And I wondered if people could now spend a little bit of time, hopefully, with uh, Russian experts, if I can characterise some people in the room like that. You might want to sit in separate seats.
1: How far yeah. <laughs> the
0: achievements and the challenges that were identified in 2008 are still prevalent in 2016? and whether some new challenges have emerged. We've already talked about 500, but there might be others as well. So I'm handing around a sheet that for ease. I think there's, there's one for everybody. Okay. All right. That basically lists the challenges and the achievements that you've already had, and asks you now focus on 2016. This is where those who are Russian experts uh, come to the fore. Which achievements have been continued, which have been rescinded, because the thing that I definitely learned from this morning was the way that progress is very much back and forth. Some things get tried and don't get taken up. So which achievements have been continued, which have been discontinued, which of the challenges are still there, what new challenges might have emerged?
1: Okay.
0: You probably want to arrange yourself in a slightly bigger group, so you have somebody who thinks of themselves as a Russian expert
1: you.
0: Okay, I'm going to bring you back. Um, I was told when I went to Russia that it's expected the lecturer will lecture and people who don't and who don't cram in content are slightly looked down on so I hope you can bear with my somewhat unorthodox style. There'll be an opportunity for questions at the end So I'm not going to ask at this point for any new challenges that you have identified, but we might return to it at the end when we have some time for questions, Um, because I'm trying to get the balance between uh, content and process right. You'll be very familiar, I think, uh, with the literature on managerialism within, I want to say, UK higher education, but more and more, I think I now need to say English and Welsh higher education, Um, These elements are very familiar to you um, and the legislation that we've had, particularly the white paper that says uh, students at the heart of the system, have driven marketisation, I would say, to a new level Um, and this has had a huge impact on the way that universities are organised and to a lesser extent perhaps academic freedom and autonomy. And I was curious to know whether there was any semblance of this new managerialism, I put UK actually, I think it ought to be England and Wales now, within Russia. And I found some authors arguing that that movement was also discernible within Russia. So that discourses of accountability, efficiency and effectiveness are emerging within Russian higher education. And that... Um, Academics perhaps are being sidelined by academic managers, by entrepreneurial members of university staff aimed at increasing revenue. So there was some evidence um, for those same elements. So then I focused specifically on uh, Russian heads of department and I read as much literature as I could. Some of it was in Russian that Victoria happily summarised for me. Um, And one of the things that struck me, and I think this relates back to the discussion we had earlier about the Academy of Sciences focusing on research and universities focusing on teaching, how on the one hand there was government documentation, a a Ministry of Health and uh, Social Development, I think, list of 40 duties for the head of department only one of which was supervising phd students so 39 other things but these poor people got a reduction only in 10 percent of what i would think of as an already massively overloaded teaching commitment so they were ordinarily teaching 500 to 800 contact hours which struck me as massive and for the privilege of being head of department they only had a 10% reduction. Again, internal graduates, um, lack of mobility, and the inbreeding that you mentioned, prevalent again. And I was also struck by how many people were older, should we say. So 28% were over 60, and I got the impression um, there was a certain reluctance on the part of Russian academics to retire um, yeah. at that time. <laughs> Not, don't, don't know if that's the case. Um, it is. <laughs> I can't wait to retire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's not relevant. Sorry, <laughs> does it show? <laughs> Basically, there is quite a substantial body of literature coming from. UK universities about the role of um, the head of department. There's a very famous study that Rosemary deem and colleagues did about 15 years ago now, an ESRC study, that identified three categories of head of department. The career track manager who really wanted to do it and saw it as a springboard to bigger and better things in the dean's office and then maybe even vice-chancellor. The reluctant manager who did it because nobody else was able to do it or they would do the least worst job. And then the good citizen manager, who might give something back at the end of a long career, um, when research wasn't so pressing and they weren't looking for promotion. Um, And that research has been updated by Bolden, Petroff, and Gosling. (laughs) 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 Um, And what they found was that actually there were fewer reluctant managers, um, and a lot more career track managers, who were seeing it as a stepping stone for the rest of their career partly, I think, because of new managerialism had brought a recognition of the need for the role to be more professionalised. And it had also become, in many institutions, more strategic, more scope for leadership, control of budgets, in a way that perhaps um, 10, 15 years earlier, when Deem did her research, wasn't the case. Um, In terms of the support for the role, um, typical things, people preferred bespoke, Courses, they liked experiential learning, they liked um, opportunities to work with peers, reflection. They weren't keen on generic off-the-shelf management courses. And in terms of the role, there was two types of conflict identified: genusian conflict, this is from Saturiaku, where basically they just didn't have enough time. They felt pulled in different directions in terms of competing demands. But more significant, I thought there was evidence of values conflict where their academic vocation was felt to be at odds with the managerialist demands coming from the central university. And that was quite um, frequently mentioned in the literature within UK higher education. And I was curious to see if that would be the case in Russia. So those are my research questions again. In terms of the findings... um, My interviewees were very open about the way in which a head of department position becomes by invitation. An elderly uh, academic, sorry, more senior, probably elder, academic, sees you perform in (coughs) an informal role and thinks that you might be suitable as a head of department. So, although I think this was mentioned in the morning... Nominally, you might have elections. There's actually only one candidate, as it were, who has been invited by somebody more senior. We didn't find good citizen managers. Um, That might be because of the age of the cohort that I was interviewing. We found only one career track manager and lots, lots of reluctant managers who were doing it because they didn't feel there was anybody else or it was perhaps their turn. And this was interesting, I felt, in relation to um, women that I spoke to saying somebody having young children, it's not an expectation for them because they are quite... uh, It's time-consuming. But once they've had them... So here I'm interpreting that the youngest might still be three or four. It's somebody else's turn to take that position over. I don't think they are, actually, because the earlier um, slide, I didn't mention it, but 71% of the heads of department were professors. Mm -hmm. And so, having made that distinction, I'm I'm presuming that they are talking about full professors. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. So, again, um, in terms of the support, very similar in many ways to the UK studies. Um, They didn't have much prior to the appointment, they were very happy with all the curriculum courses that they went to, particularly overseas. Um, they were happy with the things that they had done as part of the Bologna process, I think because it had involved lots of travel. They were happy with that. And they weren't negative about the off-the-shelf uh, generic management training in a way that Johnson had been as part of the Deem study. But again, they valued experiential learning. They valued working with more experienced colleagues. Um, and quite tellingly, one of them said, because this was a prestigious university, they were often called on to support uh, less developed universities. And she found that a good opportunity to learn new things herself by teaching another um, institution, teaching, I think in inverted commerce. excuse me, we learn things about ourselves. Okay. One of the things that Johnson had identified in the DEAM study in the UK was a desire for heads of department to have more secretarial support and more legal advice. And neither of these two things were apparent in the Russian study. And I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I want to believe that it wasn't necessary, that their role did not involve them in those arenas. But it might also be that they don't know what they don't know, that it would have been helpful, but they were not aware of their lack of knowledge in that area, if you like. But it never came up as things that they felt they hadn't had sufficient training in.
3: Well, they hadn't had any
0: training in and they didn't perceive it to be a lack. OK, so then we were asked about uh, behaviours and the role, the various things that the head of department should do. So now what I want you to do is to have a look at the second sheet, and you've got 19 examples of different types of leadership behaviour. 13 of them were identified by a study, well, a meta-analysis of literature by Bryman in 2008, looking, um, I think it's better to say at Western literature. Um, 13 of them were identified by Bryman as effective head of department leadership behaviours, and six of them come from the Russian study. Can you separate them out? This is more or less guessing, I think. And occasionally there's overlap, so clearly one of them is from the UK study and one of them is from the Russian study. But reading it through, can you identify which you think were identified by Western literature, if you like, and which were identified by
1: my Russian study. The sharp eye, the you've got a hint. Okay,
0: so just a few minutes <laughs> in your group again. Okay. Which of these do you think came from <laughs> Western <laughs> literature? <laughs> so six?
2: So, Western <laughs> literature
0: have come from the Russian studies. <laughs> well, some of them are <laughs> <be> similar. <laughs> like.
1: <Is that> <laughs> So
0: these are the things that were identified um, specific to my Russian interviewees. Um, <laughs> now, there's an element of possibly telling me the things that they want me to hear, but um, these <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like they've been
3: trained. These people had some
0: training. But it was interesting, we had one group who said, this must be for the UK because this isn't something that figures... Because we were talking before about universities um, being in Russia focused on teaching. Um, But actually, it came from them. Um, Okay, so there was also... um, Mostly there was consensus across the 11 people. What was interesting to me was that those who were heads of department themselves didn't seem to have a different perspective from those who weren't heads of department, who were lecturers and senior lecturers. Um, Of course, I don't want to make too much of it because it's a small scale, but um, there didn't seem to be that division in thinking. But the one area where there was a range of opinion was upon how much scope the head of department had for setting their own vision and how much scope they had for strategic leadership. They did talk about lounging. There was a 92-year-old head of department um, (laughs) that they were familiar with, and they talked about lounging, um, which I think at that age is probably understandable. (laughs) Still picking up the salary. Um, And basically, so they were... um, A divergence of opinion about rowing or steering... And they used a metaphor about the head and the neck, which I'd not heard of before, but... um, Yeah, apparently the head is the husband and the neck is the wife. That's how it's normally used. (laughs) And the point they were saying is that the neck has some control over what the head sees. Um, Yeah. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. Come further back. Yes. Yes. So basically, the amount of innovation was limited, but not completely constrained. Um, So there was the the head-and-the-neck metaphor, but a stronger um, expression of this was somebody who said that you have to be the nose of the ship and you have to be seeing into the distance, um, perhaps in 10 or 20 years' time, which, given the amount of um, change, I thought looking 10, 20 years' time is... Probably very optimistic in a Russian context, perhaps. Um, And then there was somebody who was of the opinion that, depending on your department, you'd have to get them by the scruff of the neck and actually do a lot of rowing yourself. You couldn't leave it to other people. Um, And what I took from this was that, understandably, fairly obviously... They were looking for situational leadership that was influenced by the context of the department, the people you had within the department, um, and the institution that you worked in, in terms of the amount of flexibility that you, within the department, as a department head, had. And then the final thing that I asked them was about the impact of social, economic and political context. Because this was a range of people, some of whom had actually worked during the Soviet era, um, and some of whom had been educated since then. And as we saw, I think, from Gurge's uh, presentation, absolute centralised control. Um, people didn't feel that they had any autonomy at all. And then they talked about a ten-year period of absolute freedom, It was a time of chaos. There were degrees, joint honours in law and medicine. I can't think of, you know, one of those would be a challenge. To combine the two, why would you do it? But apparently they were offered degrees in keeping your options open. Fair enough. Um, And then there had been a certain amount of accreditation and a regaining of centralised control, which from the people that I spoke to was mostly, with one exception, seen as a positive thing, that a degree of centralised control was necessary, otherwise resources were going to be wasted. So, they all agreed that it was very time-consuming, so there was evidence of that Janusian conflict where people felt torn in different directions in terms of their time, but there wasn't any evidence of the values conflict, of them feeling on the one hand they had an academic vocation, an individual, personal commitment, if you like, that in some ways was in contradiction with the managerialist demands that came from the central university. There wasn't any evidence of that, which I found surprising. Again, we're talking about small numbers. But I presumed that that was because there was an invitational recruitment process and people who were likely to feel values conflict were probably not going to be invited in the first place. There were low levels of individual monitoring. I asked people if they were monitored, and this um, relates to what you said this morning about only 2% of academics being monitored, even though quality assurance procedures had been brought in. Um, and I also linked it to people having positive or negative experiences of very centralised or very um, uncentralized systems. So what I did was to develop a model, which I'm going to to pass around, that tries to explain whether values conflict within a head of department is more or less likely, depending on a variety of things such as how the heads of department are chosen, the level of monitoring that individuals have, and the level of centralised control that they've previously experienced as either positive or negative. So you have the diagram on the back. Or, yeah, sorry, it's going down. And I think we can take just a couple of minutes, again in your group, how helpful do you think this is? Can you pull it apart? And do you think that it holds true in 2006, bearing in mind what you said earlier about achievements and challenges in the eight years since this research was done? So do you think it's a useful model? Do you think Russians now in 2006 would find it useful? And do you think any other instances, um, academics in other countries you're familiar with, do you think it holds true there as well? I've, I've worked in China and in the Middle East um, and Hungary. Um, and I think there is, there is something here, but I'm very um, hopeful that you'll be able to give ex- you know, additional input to refine it. Do you want to have
1: it? It's up to you. If you want, to, if you want to open to questions. Do people want,
0: want, to... want to have a couple of minutes in small group now, or do you just want
1: to go straight to plenary questions? Just maybe yeah. a minute to abuse the text and then. Yeah,
2: well, okay. I think it's a very interesting scheme. I just yeah. continue. Uh, just explain it once more. Mm. I mean, what do you mean by values conflict as opposed yes. to?
0: Values conflict yeah. is basically where somebody's identity as an academic, mm-hmm. their own personal sense of vocation, how they would like to live their professional life, if you like, and interact with students and other researchers, other academics comes into conflict with what they are required to do as a mid level manager by the centralised administration. So I can think of um, very clear examples within UK academia. Mm-hmm. So people have talked about values conflict in relation to the research excellence framework, that heads of department within England, well within the UK, have become instruments of control, if you like. Their role, from the central university's point of view, is to monitor research output in a very oppressive, micromanaging, draconian way, to perhaps instigate performance management procedures. Um, That happens a lot at universities in the REF. And there is literature on heads of department feeling that that is completely at odds with their own personal value system, Mm-hmm. and what they came into academia for. Um, it's a similar argument, perhaps, in terms of overseas students. You know, as an academic, you would want everybody to come on their merits according to how much they could benefit from education. I've had this conversation with my head of department just recently. With your head of department hat on, you're going to value the overseas student, literally, who pays $15,000 full time more than the part-time, who pays perhaps two thousand over several years. And it's those kinds of values conflicts in terms of what you think is important and influence your professional life. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I just said I mean, what you're describing is more like a conflict between your inner values and external position. What you are told to do and what you would rather do if you had the freedom to do that. Yes. Right.
0: But I think you know some academics would say. In other systems that they are familiar with, the extent of that conflict is not as great because the external impositions are less at odds with their own values. Mm -hmm. So I think there is some evidence that within the UK we are, I think, at a moment of quite acute tension in the discourse of new managerialism. And the heads of the department, are particularly, are at the sharp end of that in terms of their monitoring of the faculty in their department, the, the staff in their department.
2: And if I manager. could just add a point, mm-hmm. about the research excellence framework, mm-hmm. <coughs> I think it's more than just stuff being monitored and, and driven, but also the, the very nature and the purpose of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and the performativity mm-hmm. aspect has become very dominant, mm-hmm. um, especially impact and, and that sort of thing in, in the short term, rather than research that's driven by curiosity, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, very traditional in, in, in the academic kind of uh, value system.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So is that enough for people to spend a couple of minutes have a sorry?
1: Yeah, we've got a good citizen on here, yeah, haven't we? three-fold classification, mm. and actually in good sense that I think these days is more common than reluctant managers as we uh, Yes, true, a, yeah, yeah, eight,
0: yeah. Um, and
1: really Yeah. 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 Also, um, I think the way they're formed, the way the, the, the categorization is done here, I think both career track manager and reluctant manager would be, uh, would have a higher, uh, level of value conflict in the respective columns, right? So, career track manager would probably be not very happy with the, uh, don't know, uh, the invitational and not merit based uh, right, uh, uh, right appointment. Uh-huh. So, I would put high level conflict here as well. Alright? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And reluctant Latin manager manager will not be happy with um, um, high level of surveillance because he's just doing what he's asked. And, uh, okay. So if, uh, I just don't see how this is lower than... uh, Like, how left column is lower uh, level of conflict than the right column. Or maybe I, I misinterpret the table.
0: My thought that values conflict would be higher when there were higher levels of surveillance relates basically to academic freedom. So that in systems where there is a requirement for staff to experience a high level of surveillance there would be higher values confident, uh, conflict in that the head of department would be um, reluctant to engage in that high level of oversight. Mm-hmm. But maybe if they're a career track manager, th- they take it as a given and they don't see it as encroaching on academic freedom and stifling creativity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. just, just They the, the can be interlinked yeah. sometimes. Yeah.
3: I think maybe given that we've got only got 10 minutes, yes. um, we could open um, to comments and questions either on uh, oh, this diagram or, or on the rest of the presentation if you can make your questions relatively short. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, wave at, <laughs> wave at me um, as you think of questions. Start with you, yes, please.
1: Yeah, my name is Farid. I'm a master's student at Leeds University and I actually read your article and I have more questions about... Uh, Model of research. Uh, As I understand it, was the research and focus groups, right? And uh, is this like hot? They were like time managers of uh, the lectures, or all of them were from different departments?
0: Um, Because it was an opportunistic example, it was basically who was available on this day. And what was interesting to me was that there was one where there were heads of department, uh, from a range of departments, and no lecturers senior lecturers. There was one where it was a mixture, and there was one where it was just lecturers and senior lecturers. So we basically said there will be um, chance to take part in these three slots. And possibly because the numbers are so small, there didn't seem to be um, any noticeable differences in what the three focus groups generated. Um, so mm-hmm. they
1: were quite similar to each other. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and also one question, did you have opportunity to like assess quality of management in uh, Russian higher education? No, no. This you
0: know, this is entirely self report, this is why it didn't get it got rejected from higher education, taken by compare. no. I mean of course it would have been better, it would have strengthened it definitely to have had some observations, um, to have some more triangulation, most yes, definitely. But we went
1: with what we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you.
2: Just a okay, next question. Well, I also have a question about methodology, in way. Uh, I mean, people lie, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we do. We just, we, when we start working with a group of administrators, their first responses, like after two days of work, <laughs> start speaking, saying very different things, right? So, uh, in your research, do you have any ways to control for that? to,
1: you know,
0: Yeah. We don't directly... One of the things I say in the paper is that Saturiaki, who identified a lot more values conflict, did an anonymous postal questionnaire. So it might be that people felt able to be more honest. The only thing that I can say in my defence is that in other areas, when people were talking about um, elements of the job that they didn't like, like meetings, they became very animated, and they were quite negative, and actually one person shouted. So I took from that a small comfort that people felt comfortable enough. Admittedly, they were um, attacking a target that's uh, safe, if you like, they were talking about hateful meetings and having to waste loads of their time. So, but yes, there are holes a mile wide in terms of the methodology.
1: But yeah,
2: well, you can actually say your sample is quite representative of the <laughs> that! <couldn't also> <laughs> oh, wow. Well anyway, <laughs> because you said twenty-eight percent of your heads of department the were they were over the age of sixty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 in <laughs> overall in Russian higher education, I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe things have changed, twenty-five percent are over the age of sixty. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. which is not favorable compared to to the, to the English system of the UK system, where n- 9% only are over the age Nine. of 60, you know? And anyway, my question is, uh, <laughs> how much remuneration for this head of department? You said they had a very limited reduction in their workload in terms of their teaching, etc. but are they being remunerated? Uh, and maybe that is one of the reasons that they don't really feel that strong values conflict, because. If we look at the financial context and things like that, maybe these people are motivated first and foremost by extra uh, 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 money they, they can get as, uh, you know, as, as being part of the formal institutional hierarchy.
0: Um, one of the things that I meant to say, but of course the, the paper's longer than the presentation, mm. um, the people identified that there were differences according to the prestige of the institution that were extremely marked. So this was an elite state university that had, they perceived, um, money that everybody's salary was supplemented by. Um, and they didn't mention, specifically, heads of department getting an extra stipend, but they, they did talk about being um, less, uh, uh, how can I put this, that the need for them to go and do multiple jobs to make ends meet wasn't there. They felt that the university payment was enough for them to live on um, because they had been able to supplement it by being so successful in actually in raising fees, fee paying students and uh, a whole range of government grants as well. Mm-hmm. So they didn't mention being paid a particular extra something. Yeah I think we've just got two
1: time to, to you more questions. If mm-hmm. we have any
3: First of all, I agree with Andre. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking social desirability. I would, I would at least think. I've not read your article, so if it's not there, I think I would, I would at least write a couple of sentences about that. And, and in between cultures, I think it's, it's under researched sometimes the, the, the cultural aspect of it. Yeah. Um, and another thing I wanted to say is about academic freedom. And, and, I, and I do, I mean, having worked in, in UK higher education for the last 15 years. Um, um, it, it is quite striking how obviously academics value it, and obviously they they often perceive themselves as belonging to an academic community rather than an institutional community of practice, let's say, and therefore they take their uh, directives and inspiration from the academic, from the disciplinarian community of practice rather than the institutional, obviously. Um, but I wonder whether, and this is just me going by, um, to what I know, um, non scientifically, whether it. Um, considering and if, if, if we look at sort of how, how Russian higher education developed um, in the recent years and if we if we decide that, let's say ten years of chaos are not necessarily ten years of democratic freedom mm-hmm. so what we may be seeing then uh, is is um, um, how there is still a way to go for academics in Russia in terms of um, um, sort of um, discovering what academic freedom is, if, if that ever happens, the way it's seen in the UK. So in terms of, let's say, um, if you look at the journeys of, of the two countries, and therefore to, education, to, her, um, to, to the educational systems in those countries, the journeys are very different. So here, where academic freedom was so much more possible mm. and natural, and now it's becoming um, more oppressed and an administ- uh, sort of uh, you know lect- lectures are very unhappy about becoming administrators more than more than academics administrators and managers etc whereas actually um, so becoming more and more institutionalized in a way mm-hmm. whereas in in Russia it's, it's it's almost it's not quite an opposite process but you know you describe it very briefly if you could say that so, so I wonder whether there is a um, there is something there in terms of um, explaining mm-hmm. People's perceptions, in your, in, would, would you compare the two samples. I think
0: one of the difficulties is not um, not knowing <coughs> the extent to which strategic leadership is possible within Russia, and also in terms of budget. Because I personally, I think budget is very significant as a driver within UK higher education. Now, um, it was your study that identified. Heads of departments more and more being able to control large budgets for their own departments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because of the way um, in which everything is still item by item, that very much constrains the, the ability of a heads of department within Russia in that regard. Maybe, you know, academic freedom in some disciplines is likely to be not impacted by finance I, you know I mean, lots of things in the humanities but in terms of the scientists i'm sure that funding and academic freedom are intimately connected and so that i think that there's probably you're right there will be um there will
3: be differences
1: there i'm sorry we're going to have
3: to wrap up at this point we need to end uh, properly so i'd like to just say thank you very much to justine for a great paper lots of great-